Well, I read an article the other day about the founder of the United States Plastic Corporation. His name is Stanley Tam. Now, he started the United States Plastic Corporation in 1936, a company that's still here today, but it almost went out of business shortly after he started the company. And in desperation, young Stanley Tam, he turned to the Lord and wanted to have his guidance on what to do, and he felt the Lord leading him to give 51% of all the company's profits to the kingdom work. 51%. So young Stanley agreed to do that. And he, he, from then on, the United States Plastic Corporation gave 51% of all of its proceeds um, to the Lord's work. Well, fast forward to 1955. In 1955, Stanley Tam was on a mission trip. And while overseas, he felt the Lord leading him to do something even more. And he, he knew that God wanted him to give 100% of the company's profits um, to missions. And Stanley tried to argue with the Lord. He was like, Lord, you've already had 51%. Isn't that enough? But Stanley sensed God saying to him, Stanley, on the cross, I paid it all for you. Now you're my disciple, and I, will, I want you to do what I ask. And so almost 70 years later, the company is still going and has given about $150 million to further God's kingdom. Now, one thing that shocked me about this story is a little bit of a personal aside, is that I actually got to meet Stanley Tam back when I was in college. I was a good close friend um, with his grandson, and so I was actually visiting an Alliance church and I met Stanley Tam, and I didn't know anything about him, but other people had told me I guess he was in his late 80s at that time, about his life story and about his company and all that he had done. And what was interesting is the last I heard of Stanley Tam was, I want to say, about 15, 10 to 15 years ago. My friend from college, his grandfather, or his grandson, had made a documentary about his life. And at that time, I was like, wow, he must be in his late 90s by now, or mid-90s. Well, it turns out, I came across this article the other day, and Stanley Tam is still alive at 105 years old and still doing the Lord's work. So um, he was born in uh, 1915, and he, even though he's not running the company anymore at this point, he's still serving the Lord, and the Lord is using his life and his story um, to be a blessing to others. Stanley Tam is an example of a believer that lives out the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.16, which says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, as you know, we're, we're in this series on the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit in the church. And today we're going to see a contrast of individuals that made sizable donations to the needs of the early church. Now, this isn't a lesson on giving. Wouldn't that be fun? Pastor Marv goes on vacation, gives me the, the message on giving, right? This is, not a, this is not a message on giving. It has implications for giving, certainly. But I think it's the, what we see in the text is much greater than that. The question we're going to be answered as we look at today's passage is what does it look like to let our light shine to the praise of his glory? The first principle we see that because God is gracious... We should seek not, not, the praise of, not the praise of men, but let our light shine 
to the praise of his glory. Because God is gracious, we should seek, not seek the praise of men, but let our light shine to the praise of his glory. Let's read Acts 4.32 through 5.11. Acts, Acts 4.32 to 5.11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each and any has had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, what is the context? Well, last week we read right up to the verse before I read today. And we saw a time when these early believers, they prayed for boldness in evangelism. That is, sharing their faith. And they were praying that the Lord would bring healings and signs and wonders. So these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit... As we look at today's passage, we're seeing a united church. People who are of one heart and soul, which the text tells us. You see, the first characteristic we see is the spirit-filled believer is in awe of the grace they have received. The spirit-filled believer is in awe of the grace they have received. Now this passage, it indicates that much 
grace was upon them all. That's what it says in verse 433. Much grace was upon them all. You see, they were enjoying God's favor in their lives and their witness. Their testimony had great power, not because of their own abilities, not because of their verbal skills or their preaching skills, but because they were yielded to the Holy Spirit. That was the power that was at work with these early believers. They were standing in awe of all that God had done for them. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 8. It says that the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. This is more than an intellectual checklist that we can mentally agree with. Yes, uh, the Bible says that this is true about us, this is true, this is true, this is true. Okay, I agree with that, I guess. It's not an intellectual checklist that we just mentally agree with. It is a work the Holy Spirit does in us that gives us this understanding and joy for all that we have in Christ Jesus. It's a celebration. We are celebrating the union that we have with Jesus. That Christ is in us. That we are in Christ. That we, and I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit, it produces generosity and a trust in the Lord's provision. The, the filling of the Spirit produces generosity and a trust in the Lord's provision. You see, this early church, they saw these material blessings that they had. They saw them as temporal and they held them very loosely. Not even seeing them as their own possessions to do what they want with. So when you and I, when we begin to grasp and experience all the grace that we have been given, all that we have in Christ, the things of this world, whether they're material or not, they just fade into the background. We no longer treat our earthly possessions, our hobbies, our interests, other things, our time. We no longer treat these things like our own. We don't treat them as treasures anymore. We stop saying things like, you know what, I worked really hard for this. It's mine and I might need it later. And what was the result that happened in the early church? We're told that there was not a needy person among them is one of the things we see. This characteristic of generosity in the early church, it's mentioned for the second time here in Acts chapter 4 that we just read. But if you were to go back a couple pages, back to Acts chapter 2, we're told of this same sort of generosity where people were making sacrifices and selling things in order to provide for those in their midst. And what was the result? It says, and the Lord added daily those who were being saved. You see, this tangible love that the early believers had for one another, that was their great tool of evangelism. It wasn't the things that they said. It was that they were tangibly showing love for one another. And when the world looked at this and the world saw this, that people who probably wouldn't have liked each other in normal living 
were coming together and not only just saying they love one another, but they were demonstrating the love that they have for one another by making sacrifices to meet one another's needs. And that was the fuel that led to the growth of the early church. As, as important as it is to be able to give a verbal you know, a communication of why we believe what we believe and be able to tell people the hope that we have in Jesus, what really moves people, moved the power of the Spirit in the church was that willingness to follow the Spirit's lead, to love one another, and to be generous. And that can't be faked. It's interesting that this, this generosity, this prayer that Jesus had prayed the day before he went to the cross, in John 17, 21, Jesus prayed for their unity, and he said, so that the world would know that the Father had sent them. He didn't pray, I, I want them to be able to communicate what, what, what it means to come to me really clearly so that the world may know. He said that they, their unity would be their greatest evangelistic tool. And then we see the example set by Barnabas. One, we, we were first introduced to Barnabas, this character in the book of Acts here, but later on he travels around with Paul. So his name will be mentioned quite a bit as Paul travels around the Roman Empire. But we see, first see Barnabas mentioned in this passage. And Barnabas sold this property that he had, and it says he laid all the proceeds at the apostles' feet. You see, being generous, it flows from a complete trust in the Lord to provide. Many years later, there was a famine that would strike Jerusalem. And we learn that Paul successfully raised money for the church in Jerusalem, this church we're hearing about now being generous, and he, he provided, the Lord provided for them in their time of need through the generosity of other believers throughout the Roman Empire. You see, the example that Barnabas sets is that the spirit-filled believer lets their light shine before others to glorify God. The spirit-filled believer lets their light shine before others to glorify God. The text tells us that Barnabas sold his property and that he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're not told the this, this specific situation when this occurred. It doesn't seem likely that it was in front of the whole church. Very likely, as the passage tells us in other places, is that the, the apostles were meeting together even daily for prayer. And it was likely in one of these settings that Barnabas went and he basically said, you know, I, I want you to use this to meet the needs of the people in the church. So we see this example of Barnabas being generous. There's nothing to indicate that uh, he was doing anything to, to point people to himself. But Barnabas lived out Matthew 5.16, where it says, To let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Nothing indicates here that Barnabas was seeking any sort of fanfare about himself or his own willingness to be generous. Yet it's interesting is that clearly one outcome um, is that he was recognized for his generosity. It's even in the passage. Barnabas clearly was recognized and held up as an example of somebody who is generous. But we also see that righteous deeds encourage others to do the same. Righteous deeds encourage others to do the same. While Barnabas is the only one mentioned by name in this passage, um, as far as those doing deeds, 
It says in Acts 4.34, As many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, when we see others being willing to take a step of faith, um, it encourages others to do the same. Even Barnabas' name, his name means son of encouragement. His original name was Joseph, which he's no longer referred to. He's called son of encouragement here and then throughout the book of Acts. And it implies that his deed was encouraging to the rest of the church. I think we can even understand this concept of our deeds encouraging others to do the same. You, have you ever seen that kind of movie scene where we've seen it in like a hundred movies where like the, the star person in it says, you know, I'm going with no one else is coming with me. And uh, he's about to go off on his mission or his journey or he's going to go conquer something. And he says, who's with me? And then, it, then one by one, the most brave person stands up and says, I'm with you. And then slowly another person stands up. I'm with you too. I'll lend my sword to your cause, my bow to your cause. And finally, the most reluctant person, maybe somebody who was critical, the last person who stands up and says he's willing to join in. Um, our deeds encourage others to be generous as well. We can even understand that in human terms. But it also makes me think of the opposite in John 6, 68, where many disciples of Jesus left him, and then Jesus asks the twelve, do you want to go away as well? What Simon Peter say? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So it's true that sometimes the Lord leads us to take a step of faith when no one else is willing to. It reminds me of A.B. Simpson, our denomination's founder, who had left this successful job that he had as a pastor in a large church in New York City of many wealthy people because he wanted to go minister to the poor Italian immigrants that were coming into New York City. And they weren't welcomed at his church. His church basically said, look, it's either them or us. Because when it was just a few coming in, they didn't mind so much. But as more and more of the church began to be filled, they, they, they began to push back against us. And finally he said, you want me to choose? Fine, I choose them. And he left a secure position. He had no income and in order to follow the Lord's lead. Sometimes the Lord uses our willingness to take a step of faith to encourage others to do the same. You know, you and I, we have a lot of examples. We have the Stanley Tams. We have the A.B. Simpsons. We have the biblical examples. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, there's all these examples from the Old Testament um, who took steps of faith in their obedience to God. But unfortunately, what Acts chapter 5 shows us is that um, sometimes righteous deeds can lead others to jealousy if they're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the great contrast to Barnabas is the example that we see of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. The Spirit-filled believer desires to be holy not just to appear holy. The, the spirit-filled believer desires to be holy, not just to appear holy. Now, seeing the example of Barnabas and these other believers, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they decided to sell a piece of property that they had, but only give part of the proceeds to those in need. Now, if you're reading too quickly, you might say, well, at least they were willing to give something, right? Right? Some people probably didn't give anything. 
But the key issue wasn't how much they were willing to give or not willing to give. But the key issue is that they wanted to have the appearance of having been as generous as Barnabas has, or Barnabas was. They wanted to make everyone think that they had given all of their proceeds away so that they could draw attention upon themselves. There's a quote that I saw by George MacDonald, and he says, Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. And this is exactly what Jesus calls hypocrisy, where we're wearing a mask to play the actor. Now, what's interesting is that we're not told how big Ananias and Sapphira's gift was. And the numbers probably wouldn't mean a lot to us anyway. We don't know how big their gift was. But I think it's fairly safe to assume that it was probably a fairly large gift. Right? If, like if I came in here and said, hey, I sold my house and I'm going to give the money to the poor. And here's every dollar I got for it. Here's $100. Right? It's not going to fool anybody, right? So the gift that he came in and brought was probably large enough to give the impression that it could be could be seen as the full amount that he got for the property. Maybe a little on the low side, but probably a substantial amount of money. It's probably fair to assume that it was probably at least half the value that he got, maybe even a little bit more. So in terms of percentages, it was probably a lot of money. In terms of actual amount of money, it was probably a sizable donation. What's interesting, though, is that the early church was filled with cheerful givers who gave not under compulsion, not under guilt trips. Um, What's interesting is that, according to Horton, the Greek here does not mean that everyone sold his or her property at once. Um, Rather, from time to time, this was done as the Lord put needs to their attention. So the people would see that there were needs, and then they would make sacrifices and sell things off. I mean, can you imagine if literally everybody in the early church, they all sold all their houses, all their property, everything, and they were just living in the streets, and they're like, well, now what are we going to do? And they just had to order Domino's pizza every, every night because nobody had a kitchen to cook in. Now, that's not what's going on here, right? They, uh, the, there were needs met, and when needs appeared, people would sell things that they had, and then they would give those proceeds to those in needs those in need. I mean, even think about Stanley Tam's company, right? If he had just take, take, cleaned out his bank account, he wouldn't have been able to grow a successful company that could give $150 million to missions over the years. Um, so the issue wasn't people um, hoarding wealth. The issue was that when there was needs met, they would be willing to sell things and do things to meet those in need. So While the deeds of Ananias and Sapphira, they had some external similarities to Barnabas, right? And these other believers, there was no true similarity to what was happening. You see, their intentions weren't mostly or even partly good. They were not motivated out of a desire to be generous, but out of a desire to appear generous to others. Think about it. If true generosity was their motivation then there was really no need to be deceptive, right? What's the deception for? They could have basically said, hey, here's some money to help people in need. They could have said, hey, we sold our house and we figured, hey, we would give a certain percentage to help those people in need. And there would have been no controversy because they wouldn't have been trying to deceive anybody. Um, But the motivation was to appear more generous 
than they really were. See, if their motivation had been pure, they would have prayerfully considered what the Lord asked them to do. Whether that was 5%, 10%, 51%, like Stanley Tam's case, or later 100%, as the Lord laid that upon his heart. They would have sought what the Lord wanted them to give to those needs. And then they, they would have done it cheerfully. You know what's interesting? That You know what Ananias' name actually means? Ananias? It actually means the Lord is gracious. So his name literally is declaring that the Lord is gracious. Yet he's acting in a way that is if the Lord is stingy. That the Lord can't be trusted. That the, he has to depend upon himself and his ability to store up his own treasures. So his name means the Lord is gracious. Yet he acted as if the Lord is stingy towards him. So Ananias and Sapphira, they were seeking their own glory, not the glory of God. The glory bestowed on believers glorifies Jesus, who glorifies the Father. That's why in John 17, 24, Jesus said, The glory that you have given me, I have given them. But the form of glory that Ananias and Sapphira were after was not that sort of glory. The kind of glory that Jesus bestows upon his believers glorifies God all the more. It's not like a pie where every, every person is fighting to get their piece of the pie of glory. And what, however big one person's piece is comes at the expense of someone else's. God's glory is not like it. It's infinite. And so as he bestows glory on Jesus, as Jesus bestows, bestows his glory upon us in our lives through the power of his spirit, the Lord gets more glory. Not less. But that's not the type of glory that Ananias and Sapphira were after. You see, ulterior motives, they reveal lies to the Holy Spirit. Ulterior motives reveal lies to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not lead us to do things in order to receive praise and glory. Now, he'll lead us to do things that if they end up becoming known, they might lead others to think more highly of us, but they're things that bring glory to God. But he, the Holy Spirit will not lead us to do the things for the recognition that may come or may not come. Notice that Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter didn't just accuse them, accuse them of, you know, like maybe your motives aren't the greatest. Peter was basically saying, like, instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit, Satan has filled your heart, and they're lying to the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying to them. The way the enemy seeks to work his lies into our hearts often is by corrupting good things. I mean, it's not a bad desire when somebody, to, to, to be recognized by someone else. We, we all need those, we all feel encouraged when people tell us a good job or something like that, right? That's not a bad desire in and of itself. Um, we, in fact, we desire to want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant someday, right? That's a good desire. We want to hear those words. But those words, to hear well done, good and faithful servant, flows out of a desire to actually be a good and faithful servant, not just to be called a good and faithful servant. We want to glorify God with our lives, and that's why we want to hear those words someday. The Lord has given us time. 
he's given us different talents and abilities. Spiritual gifts, he's given us treasure. And then he desires us to use those things for his glory, not our own glory. But those things can be used to, to attract attention to ourselves. Those things can be used in the church to leverage power or influence. You know, hey, people ought to take what I say seriously around here because, you know, I do X, Y, and Z. And you know how much I give? And the giving is out of a desire of influence and control and entitlement. One trick the enemy uses is to encourage us to become prideful if something that we do or say benefits someone else, even if we did it for our own glory. I mean, certainly God can use financial gifts and other acts of kindness to bless others, can he? Even if they're done with not-so-great purposes. I think where Paul says uh, that um, he, he, he rejoices that there's even some people who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. And he says he rejoices anyway because the name of Jesus is being, you know, lifted up and proclaimed, right? So the Lord can use things that we did not do to glorify him. And that's one of the tricks that the enemy sometimes uses. Is to, to think about this. When a, when a famous pastor or some one of those people has a major fall, right? And it, something that's revealed what they were doing in secret, Right? When, when those things hit the news, quite often, there are people whose ministries have blessed and impacted and helped thousands and millions of people. So sometimes think, we, we like it when things that we do help others. Sometimes it's out of a desire to justify our own hearts and our own motives. You know, I don't, we don't know that much about Ananias and Sapphira, because the only thing we see about them is this passage. But I bet, I bet you, they would have been perfectly happy to see that the funds that they gave with selfish motives used for good. In fact, if they gave that money and it helped someone out and someone was like, oh, we thank you so much, you made our day, everything's great now, thank you so much for blessing us, that would have built up their pride. They would have been perfectly happy, I bet, that the money that they donated was used for good purposes because it would have instilled a sense of rightness in their own eyes about what they were really doing. Their excitement was only to the extent that it made them feel and it made them appear generous and righteous. It was not based on a genuine love for their brothers and sisters. And if we do outward acts to appear righteous and others seem to be blessed by those things, it can strengthen our resolve to lie to the Holy Spirit. But when we are moved and motivated by a desire to appear righteous, we're lying to the Holy Spirit. Yet think about lying to the Holy Spirit. Who are we fooling? Are we, feeling the Holy, are we fooling the Holy Spirit? No. Fooling ourselves. Let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 3 a second here. You see, our true motivations will one day be revealed. Our true motivations will one day be revealed. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15 says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal 
what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through the wall of flames. Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, in Matthew 6, 1, to beware of practicing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Then he gives three examples of giving, praying, and fasting. This is also in Matthew 6. That if we do those things in private, the Father who sees those things will reward us. Now that's interesting because this is the exact same sermon we just quoted before. In Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I don't think Jesus is is contradicting himself, but he he says here in chapter 6 to do these things in private. So what's going on here? I think the way to recognize or to reconcile these two things is the key thing that Jesus says in chapter 6. He says, beware of practicing our righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. Notice that Peter, when he confronts Ananias' wife, Sapphira, she goes along with the lie. He says, how is it that you have agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord? What does it mean to test the Spirit of the Lord? To test God is to see how far you can go in something before he does something about it. Well, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to see how far I can go in this direction. Maybe God will just kind of overlook that, and I can just keep doing that thing that God doesn't want me to do. And uh, that's what Peter accuses Sapphira of doing here, of testing the Spirit of the Lord. It's the same temptation that Jesus used, I'm sorry, that Satan used against Jesus in the desert, if you recall. He wanted him to uh, um, have the angels just come and bring him stuff to eat. Or he asks him to throw himself off so that the angels could rescue him. He was trying to get him to test the Lord. Warren Wearsby said this. These are some sobering words. He says, If God killed religious deceivers today, how many church members would be left? Well, if God killed religious deceivers today, how many church members would be left? That's a hard word. It's a hard word for me because if I look back through my life, I know that there's times where I've done things, I've said things in order to appear righteous. And my concern was more to look righteous than actually to be righteous. To give the appearance of having it all together. To the being being appearance of being wise or having something spiritual to say. I think we've all done that at times in our lives, if we're honest. Here's a good way we can test our own hearts. Does it bring us joy to see someone else bring glory to God? So if someone else is doing something kind or generous or great for the glory of God, does it produce in us a jealousy? If someone else is using their gifts in maybe ways that we wish we were more gifted, does it produce jealousy or does it produce joy? 
Because if, it, if our motives are truly to glorify God, I should be as excited about God doing something amazing in your life, about him giving you particular insight as I am to have him do that through me. Because it's about the Lord's glory. So when we see others living out the faith, when we see them um, bringing glory to God, we're excited. We're like, yes, that's awesome. But if our heart begins to tighten up, think, what about me? How come I don't have that gift? I want the attention that that person's getting right now. Do you know what I've done and nobody's ever given me credit for? Um, Those type of things build up in our hearts. And it reveals our true motives. The, The final truth that we see in this passage is that the Lord protects and builds his church. The Lord protects and builds his church. You know, I kind of thought this was an interesting account in the book of Acts. Now, if you were to read through the book of Acts from the beginning, you would see this is the first example, the first negative example that we see in the church, early church in terms of negative examples within the church. And it brought swift judgment upon those who did it. Notice that, this, that the first scandal in the church that we see, not someone who went and stole money, not somebody who went off and had an affair, not somebody who said something really bad or, or hurt somebody. The first scandal that we see in the church is someone who did something actually beneficial, giving money, but with impure motives. That's, that's quite interesting that we see that in this passage. You know, if you were to make a movie on the book of Acts, like a lot of movies, if you take a, try to make a movie out of a book, what do you have to do? You have to cut stuff out, right? If I was making a movie on the book of Acts, I would be tempted to cut this section out of the book of Acts. Because if you think about it, what do we see? The church, last week, in verse 431, they're praying for boldness, they're praying for signs and wonders, right? And the place shook. The people were, were, you know, and all of a sudden, what do we see right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira? Signs and wonders, miracles. You could have just skipped this whole chapter or so and gone right from their prayer right into the signs and wonders and miracles that were occurring in the church. In fact, even the positive example of Barnabas could be overlooked. I mean, going back to chapter 2, the same kind of thing was happening. It mentions in chapter 2 that they were selling their possessions to help those in needs. And it even goes on to say, and God was adding daily those who were being saved. Yet we have this example, this first negative example. Another thing that's easy to overlook is that this is actually the first time the word the church is used in the book of Acts. Now that church, the word for church is ecclesia. And it means uh, the assembly of believers, the congregation. So the first use of the word ecclesia, the church, is used here at the end of chapter 5. And what does it say in verse 11? This first use of the word church. And great fear came upon the whole church, ecclesia, and upon all who heard of these things. So those inside and out the church were aware of these events. And great fear came upon all. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira, you see it was a great threat to the unity and the purpose of the church. The threat to the church, it wasn't a lack of money. It was pride. Such hypocrisy, it threatens the effectiveness 
of the church today. And you see, there's a holy fear that we should have towards the Lord. It's, it's, it's not a fear about whether he will forgive us. Because we know if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Yet there is a, a fear of reverence we have towards the Lord, knowing that it's by his mercy that he doesn't bring judgment upon us today. We are to remain in awe of the grace that we have received. We should never test the Holy Spirit. Instead, we are called to be filled by the Holy Spirit, allowing him control. And he will lead us to let our light shine to God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we have sought our own glory. Even saying the right things, saying kind things, doing kind deeds, Lord, it's so easy for us to make our true motivation into drawing attention to ourselves. I've done it in my life. I'm sure many here have done it in their lives. Um, It's only by the continuing to die to ourselves and the power of your Holy Spirit that even our motives can be pure. So Lord, we pray today that you would purify our hearts, uh, that we would take great joy in seeing your name made great in the lives of others. As we see other great examples of the faith, that we would seek to emulate good examples, not to compete, but to also glorify your name through our own lives. Thank you for giving us all that you've given us. Let us continue to live in the grace that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.